Hello, I'm Patrick Chavis, and I'm here with playwright Roger Q. Mason of the new play at the Skylight Theater, Lavender Men, running August 6th through September 4th, 2022. So hello, Roger. How are you doing, Patrick? What's going on with you? I'm excited for the 4th of July. Oh my God. Let me tell you. Listen, I'm excited as hell because I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be ringing in our second Freedom Day, because you know, our first Freedom Day was Juneteenth. Yeah. And so uh we get two. So I'm going to be ringing in our second um Freedom Day with a couple of folks from from our production team. And you know, it'll be nice to to sit and bond and and, and not be at work, although this process here at Skylight Theater, developing Lavender Men, is just the thrill of a lifetime. You know, it, it. You know, you're in a good production when you go to bed every night thinking about what you're going to do in the morning when you get to rehearsal, and you get to rehearsal just like buzzing with excitement about what's happening. I mean, this room is hot. This is a hot. Set. I can't even imagine what people are going to see. And, you know, when you're in it, you're not worried about that, you know, what they're going to see or what they're going to think. You're just in the process and it feels so good, you know, to be in the process. Lavender Men is a play that I wrote and I'm also um, starring in it as Taffeta, the the narrator, the narrator and, and sort of um you know, subject of the piece. I won't say lead because everybody's a lead in this play. And, um, you know, to be the writer on the piece and then also the, uh, the, the actor on the piece and switch those hats, but yet live in both of those at the same time is it's, it's electric. And it's so, it's so exciting to be doing this right now. I know that this has had some production setbacks because of COVID and stuff like that. Yeah. Does that make it, even more exciting than your usual production, would you say? You know, you know, this show has been a long time coming. It's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the junket, thank goodness. People want to talk to me, and I'm always grateful when the press is interested in hearing what I've got to say. And I've been talking about sort of the history of this piece and, and where it came from and, and everything. And this play goes way back to even as early as 2015 for me, when I was still living in Chicago. And I was making plays uh, at Northwestern's MFA program. And also I was living amongst some of the most exciting artists that I know, who are these transgender and gender nonconforming performance art makers living in Chicago. And I was seeing the ways that they were playing with, you know, theater and dance and film and music and just creating this art that was, it was nothing short of mind bending. I mean, you would sit there and see these shows and think, okay, I literally grew some brain cells today because y'all taught me something. It was an education. And they were not only thinking about expanding the theater as an art form, they were thinking about expanding their place in it as gender nonconforming and transgender people. How do we build a space where we can be the new normal? you know, where we as queer people can be the protagonists of these stories. And it was a really exciting and interesting moment to be imagining my own future as a writer. And so Lavender Men started out as a play that I was writing while I was in Chicago. Then I put the piece away for several years. I picked it back up in about 2018, early 2019, when I was 
a um, a writing resident here at Skylight Theater in LA in their Skylab writers group. And a lot of, a series of exciting events happened, which allowed me to then do a reading of the play here in, I think, July of 2019, and then do a reading of the play on Broadway in 2019, August of 2019. And there was was a lot of excitement around the possibilities of this play. And so Skylight at that time had committed to producing the play in their next season, which would be 2020, 2021. So we getting into um, January, February, 2021, uh, excuse me, 2020, Mm -hmm. and we're starting rehearsals. Yeah. And we're hearing about this little this little flu, you know, that's going on in China in this like February, March. Yeah. And and we not thinking anything of it. And, you know, about two or three weeks into rehearsal, the the pandemic had started. So they, of course, you know, canceled the production. But I kept going, you know, because I started getting into digital theater. So I was able to. A lot of people were worried about legacy and memory you know, at that time, especially in uh, queer and black and brown circles. We were worried about how do we hold our own and honor them. So I was really fortunate at that time to do a series of digital showings of my work. Um, One of them was the uh, city of West Hollywood and and Celebration Theater uh, had named me the Chuck Rowland Award winner. And so we, instead of doing a ceremony at the city hall of WeHo, we did a televised uh, presentation. And so it allowed us to get some really interesting name folks, you know, queer folks, not only in LA, but around the country that were available because we was all sitting at home baking cookies and shit, right, you right. know, and that, so that yeah. happened. And then the fire this time, which is an OB award-winning incubator for black playwrights in New York did a, a spotlight on my work and we got a chance to collaborate on, on pieces of that with uh, L. Morgan Lee and Lynn Nottage and Wayne Brady. And so it was crazy. It was like, I, this is, so it's all of a sudden it, amidst tremendous loss, you know, and hardship, George Floyd, the attacks on Asian and Pacific Islander people, attacks on Jewish Americans, attacks on our democracy, <laughs> you know, January yeah, yeah. 6th, you it's know, crazy. January 6th, right? Yeah. Like, despite all of that stuff, mm-hmm. people were starting to p- pay attention to and really listen to Black queer writers, including me. Right. And so I'm sort of a product of the attention and the care that was being given to demographics in our business that had not been really honored and paid attention to with the fullness and commitment up until that point. You know, you'll see, oh, we're gonna do the black play per year or oh, we're gonna commission one black playwright. But, you know, we talk a lot right now in playwriting circles about we're not investing in a play, we're investing in a person. You know, how do I create a sustainable relationship to this person because their life in many ways is their art. Right. How I interpret the world, how I make meaning of the people and experiences that I've had in this life and interpret them for performance. That's my art. Yes. So you need to figure out a system by which to honor and treasure and keep me warm and inspired and sustainably healthy, not just 
physically healthy, but mentally and spiritually healthy. So I really do feel like we are in a revolution in terms of going from product-oriented society to people-oriented society, at least in the circles that I live in. You know, you need to honor the people. So all of that is to say that the last two years allowed me to gain a lot of visibility, but they also allowed me to think about my life and what I want to say. And so I'm actually grateful to answer your question. I'm actually thankful that the show didn't happen in 2020 because it allowed me to live a little bit more life and gain some new insights and some new power to bring to the page. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Patrick, that has made all the difference in the world, not only for this script, but also for what I write and how I write now. You know, I'm, I'm able to speak so much more clearly and directly without hiding behind metaphor and, and poetic assimilation. You know, I'm able to just say it, say it gracefully, say it artfully, say it truthfully, but say it. And I feel free on the page, I feel liberated in the room, you right. know? Yeah. And, and so I'm glad that we didn't do the show in 2020. I'm thankful that life showed me what I need to do and when I need to do it. Life will always show you. So here we are, it's 2022 and I'm a brand new bitch and I'm ready. I'm ready to go as they used to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wonderful to hear that. And I I was having this a conversation kind of similar similar to this. It's in the arts, not about theater, but about music. And I was because mm. I was reading this article and they were talking about like like because people aren't uh if people don't appreciate art or theater or anything and stuff like that, and they don't invest in it and stuff like that, are we are we losing who like maybe the next Mozart? Are we losing maybe the next Charlie Parker? Are we are right. we losing? Are we losing the next Roger Key Mason? Uh, like uh, <laughs> key, key, you know, Key uh, uh, in theater and stuff like that, and, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. We might be doing that when we're not looking into, like you said, you, uh, your voice. Your your voice is right specific and unique to you, and it's an important voice to hear because it's not a voice that's often heard in theater. Right. Um, up up well, up until now. Now we're starting to hear a little bit more. But right. if, we, if we just look twenty years in the past, not really, right. not really, right. especially especially not trans voices. Maybe maybe right. gay voices. You guys are here. There's a lot right. of you. There's a lot of you, and you're a part of who we are. You're part of our families. You're part. You're, you're everywhere. We need to hear your story. Right. And the truth. Yeah. And the truth is, we have always been here. We have always been here. Yeah. We are your cousins. We are your sisters. We are your coworkers. We are your teachers. We are the people that draw blood at the blood bank. We have always been here. Transgender and gender fluid people have always been in our society and in societies before the modern one. You know, and and I think about the idea of cultures, you know, pre-modern Western cultures, including many Native American cultures, 
who saw folks that were gender nonconforming to spirit, you know, whatever, however you want to call it, as religious figures and as divine figures. You know, we uplifted our folks. We've held them in a place of distinction. We understood that they possessed powers and understandings of life that were sublime, you know, and I run a, 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 a fellowship called the New Visions Fellowship with National Queer Theater and the Dramatist Guild. Yeah. And I'm the, 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 the lead mentor of that program. So my job is to work directly with the writers and the, the finalists on developing new plays. And so much of our work has nothing to do with discussing a script, but just creating a safe space where we as trans and gender non-conforming people can just feel safe to think and breathe and dream and be ourselves. Yeah. That's the work that we're doing. That's not a lot the, to ask. That's not oh, a lot it's, to ask. It's not a lot to ask, but in a world like ours that is literally trying to legalize the erasure of transgender people. Because see, a lot of people don't think about this when you... And, I, and this is, I'm talking about this on my other show because I, I have a new show coming out called Queerly Yours, Profiles in Courage. It's on This Way Out Radio. And one of our guests, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say who it is, but we're talking about Roe versus Wade. And what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, gender expression, gender identity and sex are not the same thing. So when you take away the right to an abortion, you're not just taking that right away from somebody who identifies currently as a female or, or a femme presenting. You're also taking that away from trans men, folks that you know were assigned different at birth, and, and you know, and and now they're they transition. People yeah. don't think about the larger ramifications. It's interesting, you know. There was, and they don't even think about the real impact on women. Well, well some people can't even get get past the distinguishment of the difference between sex and gender. Some people have to have any, you'd be surprised. Mm -hmm. they, they, they haven't even gotten past that part. You'd think it's just, it would it take, you'd think it'd take five minutes just to read right. different. You, you, if, you're go, if you're talking about going into a deeper place, well, right. you, you can't get to that deeper place. No. They're not even no. going, they haven't got, they haven't even gone to the basic, basic part. Some, some people, some people. And, it, and, and I'm going to tell you, Patrick, it's, it, and yeah. I'm a very generous person. I'm a very socially generous person. And what I mean by that is I like to give the individual the benefit of the doubt when I can and say what aspects of our culture and society have led you to become this way. And I think about the miseducation or the non-education that we receive in this country around sex and gender training. Sexual and gender health is not something that's taught and retaught and individualized in this country. I remember when I was coming up, we had one sex health class. And I think it was in 12th, well, I was 12 years old. So God, it had to be like eighth grade or seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the one of the days that it was a, a quarter. They only spent a quarter, three months. My whole life, I'm going to be deciding things based on sex, intimacy, romance, 
sexual desire. And the only official acknowledgement that I'm ever going to receive from my schooling is three months when I'm 12. And I have to go around and make decisions for the rest of my life based on that. And what did they teach at that time? I'll never forget. They had a slideshow. They remember when they had slides, you put them in the carousel and you show the pictures. And they showed us pictures of the manifestation of different STIs, Mm. sexually transmitted uh, infections, in an attempt to basically scare us into celibacy. Well, if yeah. you have sex and you're going to get this and then you're going to get this and then you're going to look how scary that is. That's not how you foster a society of people that have a constructive and open and vulnerable and empathetic relationship to sex. Mm-mm, definitely not. You can't scare people and expect them to have a healthy relationship to the most central part of themselves. Your genital organs are literally at the center of your body and you're going to scare me out of my body. And a lot of it causes a lot of it. Honestly, I've I've heard you're not the first person that's that's I've heard this from a lot of Mm -hmm. this turns into trauma later on in life. Yeah. Some, some doesn't, some doesn't come very soon. Sometimes it takes years and years and years. And then later on, you're like, yeah, why did that wait? Why am I like this? And why? Am I, oh, my gosh. What you're like this? Do? Because oh we made we, because like it's the yeah. whole thing of like the event of parents having, quote, the talk. You know, not a good, not a good talk, not a good and talk. never and never a good talk. It's always yeah. this scary compartmentalized thing. Let's face it. We do not have a healthy relationship to our bodies in this country. And, you know, one of the things that I think about when I write for the theater is how do I decolonize and how do I bring joy to the body? That's one of the themes in Lavender Men, for sure. You know, how can I bring care and love and empathy to these bodies? You know, and I'm really, really interested in exploring the ways in which we do and don't regard bodies, you know, and the ways in which we historically have not done it, you know. So it's it's definitely a lesson that we need to learn as a country. Now that this is that's a good segue into like, can you just let let our audience know and stuff like that? I already read the synopsis. What is kind of like uh, in your own words, a basic synopsis of what Lavender Men is? Well, you know, it's funny because we learned a lot about what the play really is today. And Lavender Men is the story of a transgender nonconforming narrator named Taffeta, who is alone and rejected by the queer community, largely white queer men. And she conjures the spirits of Abe Lincoln and his lover, who was his legal assistant, Elmer Ellsworth in order to imagine a life of care and insert herself into that romance so that either she can participate and feel love for the first time, or she can learn through them what it's like to be loved and maybe get it for herself one day later on. Is Taffeta magical? How is, how is she able to, how, I said she has, yeah, yes, that's right. She answers to she. Oh, she does. Tabitha does. Okay. Yeah. How does she conjure this? Well, you know, it's the theater, so literally, she calls them out, and they come. Oh, <laughs> oh I, I know, I know that. Yeah. I know yeah. that's the truth. But is she supposed to be magical? 
No, I think she's a regular girl. Regular I girl. mean, she's a regular she's a regular girl who's stuck in her head like so many of us are. Yeah. You know, and a lot of this play is about the power of our own imaginations. You know, I call it a fantasia. Yeah. And 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 a fantasy. And so, you know, it's not so much magic as it is the the power of our own minds to imagine worlds and possibilities that that in the real world we may not see. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like being in love or loving yourself. We may not see that in life, but in my mind, I can imagine a place where I can be free. Yeah. Well, if I can imagine it in my mind, then maybe I can build a road to having it in my life. Yeah. And that's what she's and that's what she's looking at, you know, as I see it today. You know, that's the beauty of rehearsal mm-hmm. is you find your play. And I'm I'm blessed in that I, I understood it on one level as a writer. But now as I'm in the play, as the actor playing Taffeta. I'm learning so much more and I'm learning that you have to lead with the heart and the gut. Mm. That's Mm. not necessarily where we always come from as writers, but it's certainly a lesson learned and something I will be doing more often because I think there's so much to be learned from following your gut. You could pick any historical figure. Why, why was it Abe Lincoln? Yeah. A lot of people are asking me that and, and, You know, them asking me has allowed me to think about the answer. White America justifies its neutral relationship or its supposed neutral relationship to race by saying everyone has the opportunity to make it in this country. You just have to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard. Mm. It doesn't take into account all of the educational, financial, civic, medical, you know, religious gaps between black and white that make it easier for somebody who's white, even if they're under the worst of circumstances, there's always something that makes it different for them to advance and succeed in our society than somebody who's a person of color. And I believe that that myth starts with the myth of Lincoln, the man who came out of the woods, the log splitter in chief, who taught himself how to read and write become a lawyer, and then he became the president of the United States. Right. Yeah, because it's a myth. It's a myth. It's a There's, myth. He was a man, and, a, and he, had, he, he, had, a lot, he had, a lot, had a lot of family. He had a lot of failures yeah. and stuff like that, just like everyone else, you know? Exactly. And you so know. what I'm trying yeah. to do is complicate yeah. that. I'm trying to say, okay, you, you use this man to tell yourself that bedtime story right. to sleep at night. Now, let me use his story to tell mine. Sure. Why not? Why not? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, if, if, if you're going by that, yeah, you're using the exact same logic, this myth, this mythos, this kind of false mythos of this perfect man, this perfect things and stuff like that. If you can, if, if, they, if someone can do that and use that to disenfranchise people and, and create a lot of stuff, well, you can, you can do the exact same thing with stories as well. That's not, it's a, it was a, that's mm-hmm. a great, that's a great idea. True. We should be mm-hmm. rewriting our rewriting our stories, and I love what you said about I because I think I think you're right. I think it was a, it's a horrible thing that this pandemic happened and stuff like that. But I think it did give an opportunity because people were stuck in their houses, and it, I think it's changed. Yeah, it did. I, I think it kind of 
changed a whole bunch of different things where people are rewiring things and being like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Things don't have to be the way we thought they had to be. I I, I remember just before the pandemic, people were talking about, oh, you can't work from home. You can't do this from home. Mm-hmm. And now look at how many people are working from home and doing their jobs from home. Like exactly. When, you were so sure we couldn't do it before. <laughs> but yeah. so it's it's and that's just a small example. There's so many other examples of exactly what's happening and um yeah i think i think you're i think theater artists artists in general i think this is a great time to like you said don't let don't let uh, don't hold yourself back i think sometimes it uh we're we're taught to be polite and stuff like that and this is all good you should be polite you should be nice and you should be respectful and but that's different from holding yourself back and not speaking your voice and being your authentic self that's very different right Right. Sometimes that gets yeah. conflated. Yeah. It does get conflated often. Most yeah. of the time it gets conflated, honestly. Yeah. The people that go to a show like yours, do you feel like they're like already the converted? Like, how does that make you feel? Like, do you, <laughs> how, how do you, uh, how do you get and reach out to the other people? You, you, you get, you get what I'm saying a little bit? You know, it's funny because that's the challenge and the, and the joy of, of marketing a show. You, you, you have an idea of who your audience is and you certainly pursue that audience. And then you also find other people that resonate with the show that you would have never dreamed of. Hmm. And sometimes the people that you thought would have resonated with the show don't. Hmm. And you discover who does instead. I mean, I, a, a production... See, the, the, the thing about living in, in a society that, that, that comes from scarcity rather than abundance is that we tend to hold every opportunity as the only one we'll have. And so somebody gets the chance to do a production. Sometimes they go, oh, my God, I don't know when I'm going to get another one. I, I, I got to pour everything into this. This is all I've got. I look very sober-mindedly at a production. I say, well, this is one. I'm going to have others later. And so this is an opportunity to do this work through this piece. And when I come back to this play, because I will, because I live in abundance, then I will look at this. So the purpose of this particular production is, you know, whatever I choose for myself. And, you know, I I think about each time you work on a play, you get a chance to learn something different about it. Well, one of the things that will be interesting in this production of the play here in Los Angeles is to learn who responds to it. You know, who is it for? I know who I wrote the show for. I wrote the show for my girls. I wrote the show for big femme black girls who get no respect. The people who are always on the front line of rejection and, and erasure in our country. You know, black femme presenting plus size people of color. I wrote the show for us. That's why I know I wrote it for. Now, other people will experience erasure, loss, loneliness in a way that reaches across the aisle, so to speak. And there's a similarity between their understanding of that and ours. So they will also be stakeholders in the show. Mm -hmm. And I can't, you know, I'm not clairvoyant, so I can't tell you who that's going to be. We can Mm -hmm. certainly try and reach as many people in as many communities as possible. And from that place, you know, give them a show. 
Right. That's the best you can, sometimes that's the best you can do. Give them a shout. And it's the best you can do. That's right. it. That's all well, we can do is give them one hell of a show and yeah. just hope and know that whoever it was meant for, they will come and say, child, go on now. Mm-hmm. I'm here for it. How did you make the decision for Lavelle to direct? And I hope that's Lavelle. How well, did you get Lovell. to direct it? Oh, it's Lavelle. It's Lo- Lovell Holder. Lovell the Holder. The emphasis is on his first syllable of his name. Uh-huh. Lovell, Lovell and I have yeah. known each other since we were, well, since I was 19 years old. And and I'm in my uh, late 30s now. I'm not going to tell you my age. So we've <laughs> known each other for a long time. And Lovell is my creative partner. And also, you know, I call him, he, he's my right hand. You know, it's Lo- it's Holder and Mason. That's our creative team. Mm-hmm. And we finish each other's sentences. So we've worked on over the last, you know, five or six years, we've worked on quite a few projects together. And this is one of them. So, you know, when we were doing all that development work in 2019 and such that I was talking about, I, of course, was like, okay, Lovell, you coming on this ride with me. Let's go. Here's the plane ticket. Let's get it going. You know, that was it. No questions asked. We we going to do this. That was just what it was. Right. You know, and, and Lovell is an extraordinary director, but also he cares so deeply and is so protective of people that are in his in his circle that you feel not only talk about a relationship that's a people oriented versus product oriented, you know that you're going to be handled with the most empathy and care when you're with him. So it wasn't even a decision. I knew he was coming along for the ride with me on this one and, 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 and many others to come. What's been like a big challenge for you with trying to play the character of Taffeta? Well, the challenge is probably going to be yet to come, which is memorizing all these damn lines. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's one thing to write the play and and it's another thing to embody it as the performer. And, you know, I'm the same person, but it's also a different part of my mind, body and spirit that's coming to the room as the actor. What's that? What's that process for you? I know different people have different process. Are you just do you kind of just get into the scene do you do you do some kind of method what's what's the process i turn i turn certain things off and i turn certain things on you know the the writer tries to solve their way out of a problem through the mouth and through the brain sometimes the actor teaches you to think from the gut there's a lot to be learned by the writer from the actor and so I just stop rationalizing things or trying to revise things as the actor. I just go and, I, and, you know, it's interesting because and I've given some of my most earnest testimonies about the play, but also about my life when we're in table work on this play, because I can't hide. You know, I can't sit there and hide behind intelligence or wit or you know, smart story construction. It's just, well, what do you want right now? Well, I want that man to touch me. Okay, we'll do that. And then that's what that scene is about. It's not about the themes of the play or the black, you know, it's just what do you want? That's that primal need. You know? Yeah. What 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 Monique was talking about in Precious, who gonna make me feel good at night? 
that she's talking about she's talking about primal need and so the actor has to come from that place because they are our mirror yeah yeah Yeah. because they are our mirror yeah they reveal the truths that we are socialized into feeling like in polite society oh we shouldn't say that we shouldn't do that they have to do it because we have to reflect back to you who you really are right right that's the only way you'll change if you need to if you don't (laughs) then keep doing it honey we glad we showing you how fabulous you are shit you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is uh the story the story of taffeta personal or connected with with your life in any way you know it's it's interesting that you asked that so originally the play was just the love story of lincoln and elmer so it was a two-person play that was the 2015 version And then I added a little sassy narrator named Taffeta who spoke a little bit at the first scene and then said a couple of words in the last scene. And we were so attracted to her that we wanted to see more of her. So it sort of evolved into Taffeta's story, Taffeta as the narrator and and her own loneliness and how she confronts Lincoln, you know, about her own loneliness. And tries to insert herself in his, you know, because misery loves company. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and um, in order to do that, we sort of farmed some material from another play of mine that was autobiographical, a solo show called um, Age, Sex, Location. And it was about my own struggles with intimacy. Uh, growing up in the 90s and and the whole, you know, AOL gay chat rooms moment and all of that stuff. And so we pulled some of the monologues from that piece. So it's dismantled now, poor thing. But we pulled some of the monologues from that piece that um, that we thought would be resonant with the questions and themes of this play. And that is how we made it Taffeta's story. And it became very, very uh, powerful to hear those. Those are some of the, uh, well, there are a lot of exciting moments in the play now because I love my rewrites. I love them, you know, but there's a lot of stuff that excites me about the play. But those are some of the the really impactful moments. And and they kind of cracked open the personal narrative of the piece for me. Would you you agree that like writers are the people that are are that are just are they're not they're the ones that are really good at rewriting because the writing doesn't begin until it's until you've actually written it's the it's the extra stuff that you do is that what really makes you a writer what what would you say you know what i would say i would say that the most important thing you have to do as a writer is listen because your writing benefits from an acute and astute understanding of the world in which we live and so if you don't keep your ear to the ground stone to the grindstone and listen how do people navigate life through language through behavior through action 
How do they navigate the world? How do they use every part of their bodies to survive? You know, we don't even think about this. We're in a constant state of gasping to survive. We don't think about the in-breath, out-breath that we do. What if you stopped? You wouldn't make it two minutes. Just yeah. at the very core of what it means to be alive is this grasp, this in and out that you have to keep doing, constantly treading water. We're floating. Air is, is water. We're, we're treading water right now. Wow. You know what I'm you're saying? Really breaking, you're really breaking it down. You know what I'm Ooh. saying? We're treading water right now. Yeah. Now. So I think the writer is reflecting that endless struggle to just keep breathing. And that means you've got to live in the world and be quiet and let life teach you. That was what I think would be the first lesson I would teach a writer is not how to write, meaning um, to type or to handwrite dialogue. That's the last thing. That's. If you're not doing this work, you don't, you're not prepared with the information you need to successfully, efficiently, and honestly do that. You know, and the other thing too is we have to decolonize our definition of writing. You know, writing occurs anytime you make meaning in the world as a storyteller. Writing happens anytime you explain something to yourself through telling yourself a story. You can be washing your dishes and trying to remember, okay, now how did I meet Jojo? Well, we were at the party and Nancy had left. That, mo you know, that moment, you can be, and for writers specifically, writing happens anytime you're thinking actively about the progression from one moment to another in your play. You know, Aaron Henney is one of my great uh, mentors and heroes as a playwright. Aaron Henney is a Los Angeles-based writer and dramaturg. And Aaron said, you could be walking down the street or taking your dog to take a shit at a dog park. And as long as you are thinking about the progression from one scene, one moment to another, actively and imaginatively, you're writing. You, in fact, should meditate on your story before you sit down and actually commit it to paper. That was the most revolutionary idea I'd ever heard because we have such strict definitions of how we're supposed to behave as writers, who we're supposed to be in the room, what we can say, who we can say it to. That idea, and also for me personally, being a writer and a performer, so I'm breaching company lines, you know, already I'm, you know, the writers over here, the direct, the, the actors over there, you know, no, I'm, I'm living in all of it. And I really do believe that because I'm a queer person, I possess, a, I embrace the fluidity and the non-binary understandings of my job and my life and my way of making storytelling meaning in the world. I think queerness taught me how to live in the world with flexibility, with empathy, and with imagination. I just wish more people could live like that. So many people are just, I call them emotionally constipated. So many, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do. I so, do. so many people have yeah. just sticks up their butt about how they're supposed to be in the world. 
And if you just open yourself up to new ways of living and new ways of thinking and new ways of being, who knows who you can become? My God, you might become your true self, the one that you silenced and tried to deny all those years. And wouldn't that be something? It would, it would. Hey, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I've learned a lot, Susan. I could keep going. But... uh... Um, well, thank you so much. Can you please let uh, let our audience know when Lavender Men is uh, coming on and where they can see it? Yes. So Lavender Men is playing at Skylight Theater in Los Feliz, the neighborhood of Los Feliz in Los Angeles. And it is running from August 6th to September 4th uh, here in L.A., limited engagement. And uh, th- for those who do not live in Los Angeles, there will be a stream version of the play available starting August 20th for people to watch um, at home. But for those that are in LA and are going to shows and interested in seeing stuff, y'all better see it live because you don't know what Taffeta gonna do or what she gonna wear or what she gonna say because I'm liable to do anything. So if you want the real tea, come in person. But also for those that live in other parts of the country or have a different access needs, we also have a streaming available as well. And it would be a great honor and a joy to perform this show for all of your listeners on this program. I would love to see them all at the theater and hope they will come. 